The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And um, I just wanted to check in with everybody, uh, see if there's any questions, um, see if I'm going too fast, if there's TMI, too much information, <laughs> uh, you know, if, I, if it needs to be, um, yeah, any feedback or questions or comments at this point? Okay. Um, I did want to, I kind of skipped over one thing. I'd like to put a plug in for the women. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) Buddhism, uh, historically, I think, has kind of had an image maybe of being uh, misogynistic, and not really uh, acknowledging women, and, and I think along the way certain certain Buddhists have, but you know there's this whole kind of getting ahead of myself, but this whole story in the the Vinaya of how the uh, female sangha was established, the, the bhikkhuni uh, initial bhikkhuni ordination of Mahapajabati, of whom that <coughs> statue out there uh, symbolizes. Um, and uh, in that story, in the Pali version of the Vinaya, um, it uh, gives you the impression that the Buddha didn't want women to be uh, ordained as bhikkhunis, to you know, be able to practice on that level of, of a monastic life, totally dedicated to, to uh, spiritual practice meditation, um, if you read that version. And Venerable Analia, with his comparative studies, has gone back, and there's other... Vinaya's, as I mentioned, available, and, he, and that same story is in there, and it's very different in, depending on which version you read. And he's got a, a, it's kind of an academic article, but an article out there that um, really challenges that historical perception that the Buddha was against that. And um, there's many other passages where it seems, you know, the Buddha had respect for women. Um, he, some of his uh, lead disciples were uh, women, you know, there's in this one of the richest um, suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, Majjhima Nikaya 44 was given by a woman, and it's very, you know, it's it's very um, detailed and very, you know, it shows her level of practice as being very high, and um, you know, she was very well respected. So. Um, and, you know, as we are students of the suttas, I think sometimes we encounter those kind of pass- some passages that, you know, um, are, uh, you know, seem to be, um, you know, sexist or a little bit chauvinistic. And, I, you know, I, I, the way I hold them is I don't know if that's what the Buddha said or if there were monks that came later, you know, for example, in this study by... Venerable Analio, it looks like, you know, maybe, and you can imagine a scenario where um, maybe later monks had wanted to, you know, put the women in their place or, you know, maybe they weren't getting as much support, you know, because the women were doing a better job at teaching. I, I don't know what the circumstances are, but it's, it seems like maybe those passages were doctored after the fact. And I want to put a plug in for a wonderful book here by Susan Murcott. It's called First Buddhist Women. And it is a collection of the 
Terigata, where are we? Oh, here it is, right here. Um, so the Terigata is a collection of um, enlightened men at the time of the Buddha, giving very short, pithy um, poems about what enlightenment meant to them, what their awakening involved. You know, there's, there's ones by um, Angulimala and by Ananda and <clears throat> probably Sariputta, and, you know, just a, just a whole bunch. And then the Terigata is uh, by women. And um, Susan Murcott, who's actually a professor of engineering <laughs> um, and reads Pali, uh, went through and translated them and, you know, went, got the commentarial information. And it's just a, it's just a great story of the early uh, female Sangha. It's called First Buddhist Women, Poems and Stories of Awakening by Susan Murcott. Um, and I highly recommend that, uh, that book to get the feminine uh, picture of the, of the feminine in uh, early Buddhism. And, you know, in our country, I, I, you know, I teach meditation classes, and I'd say probably about 70% of the classes are women, you know, and I don't know what the numbers are, but certainly there's a lot of women um, meditation practitioners and students of the suttas these days. Uh, so I think it's an important um, aspect to include in our discussion here today. Oh, yes, uh, Jeff, I had a, um, one question. Question: If you, I didn't find um, a reference to, to that particular article you're referencing by Analio in your um, little resources at the back, so could you, give, could you give me that either now or, or for everyone's benefit? Um, yeah, I don't have the particular article, but I think I have his... Or, or where we could yeah, find so it. Yeah, so on is page it on 90, it's a long thing to put in, but, but there's a PDF of this also on the uh, Sati Center website. It's already uploaded, and I'll, as I make corrections, I'll keep it updated. But on page 90, if you, um, mm-hmm. you don't have to type that in, but Venerable Bhikkhu Analio's Maja Agama Comparative Study Course. Um, oh, Actually, I didn't have it. So at that same Buddhist Muskund, I don't speak German, but at that same uh, site, site, yeah. yeah. So basically what I did is I Googled Analio, and then in there it says his teachings. And you can get a lot of his academic scholarly articles in PDF form. And in there, I think it's called, it's, it's an article he wrote um, a few years back, I think it's called, it might have Mahapajabati's Mahapaja, name in it, okay. or uh, um, the original Bhikkhuni Sangha. Or something. He's, he's done a lot of um, writing and investigation in this and has supported the, the, revi- the Bhikkhuni ordination revival that's happening in this country. He flew, he was here last year because he flew specifically from Germany where he lives to be at the Bhikkhunis that were ordinate, uh, ordained at uh, Spirit Rock. And, um, you know, he's, he's been a real champion of that. And, you know, for, for that reason and his, his scholarship, I really um, appreciate him, you know, his voice. So, yeah, you can get that article. Uh, it's on, on that same site. Yes. Yeah, I have yeah. gotten other articles, but I didn't know he wrote about this, too. So that's good yeah, information. Yeah, I'm forgetting the exact name of the article. But if you, if you look Mahapajapa through, you know, he'll look through. he's got okay. like 40 articles. But if you look through, it'll <laughs> jump out at you and you'll, you'll know. He's now got a few one on one. Now that I know to look for it, there are yeah. a lot. So, and the other thing I just wanted to... Uh, Amplify, if I could, your recommendation of uh, of Susan Murcutt's book. So, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with her book and you're interested in this topic, I mean, it's really um, 
I mean, I found it so, uh, I mean, I found it kind of sunk in like reading the, the suttas, reading some of this, the actual translations of the poems and the words of these early monks. I mean, it's really, can be a very wonderful way to get into that. M-U-R-C-O-T-T. Yeah, it's it's in it's in the references there too. Um, and you can also, <coughs> on access to insight, you can um, read a number of these poems. They don't have a, the detail of uh, the commentaries that she does, and it's you know it's not as I think beautiful. Um, you know, portrayal of of their. I mean, it's just, it's just a fascinating read her her book because you know these women that came to this early sangha were prostitutes and queens and you know every, everything all walks of life and you know just the the hardships they had endured as women and so you get a picture of what it was like to be a woman in ancient India and then you get a picture of how they were welcomed by other women and men into the sangha and then they practiced to to achieve their awakening you know it's, it's just really inspiring stuff. So now we are going to travel. Now that we have some background information, we're going to travel in space and time to ancient India to um, get into this thought world of early Buddhism and the suttas. And um, a number of years ago, I went to on a pilgrimage with John Travis. He's one of the Spirit Rock teachers. And uh, there's a number of teachers who take um, groups of students on pilgrimages to these early Buddhist sites. I know Stephen Batchelor has done it for Tricycle magazine. And um, I think Spirit Rocks, um, what's your name, Armstrong? What's that? Sally. Sally, sorry. Yeah, Sally Armstrong. She took a group last year, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, you go to these sites and they've all become, uh, this is where the Buddha lived and played and became awakened and taught and, you know, all of, all of his, his birthplace is here in, the, in this very little, I don't know, what is this, 200 kilometers? Is this 100 miles? This very small bit of northern northeastern uh, India. And um, these sites have become archaeological sites and you can go there and there's you know very vibrant communities of people meditating and practicing in monasteries from different countries built up and um, you know different stupas and relics and, and shrines that you can see. And it's really uh, for me it was a very inspiring way to make this sutta material come to life, you know, because you go to these places where some of these suttas were, were taught and, you know, you, you, all of these legends, you can kind of get a feel for the the conditions in India, you know, and, and you know, it's it's a hot country, it's it's um, in the tropics, and uh, now these days the air quality is really tough. <laughs> this is a warning there. So, at the time of the Buddha, um, this all happened, and this is the Ganges River here, and there's several other rivers feeding into it. And then this goes out into, I think, yeah, Calcutta, or else not, these days it's called Kol- Kolkata with a K. Um, this was a time um, where uh, ancient India was a feudal system. There were um, kingdoms, 
And it was an agrarian society. They had an iron, uh, it was an iron age, so they had some tool making. And they had people of different, you, know, you get an image of this from the suttas. There's not a lot of history books about it, but from the suttas themselves, you can get an image of what life was like in those days. Um, and it just isn't, as a side note, there's not a lot written about Buddhism or Buddha, the Buddha, um, outside of the suttas, you know, and the, and the, the Buddhist literature. Um, for example, when you read the suttas, you come across a lot of different sects, you know, different uh, rival religions. So we say like um, Jainism is in there. The uh, the found one of the leaders of that um, is is uh, appears in several suttas. Um, either his disciples or the disciples are coming into contact and questioning or challenging the Buddha. Um, Naganthanataputta was his name in the suttas, but this was probably Mahavira in the Jain religion. And then um, Brahmanism, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then there were the Jivakas. There were these different uh, groups of people, um, and some of their literature survives. And there's, uh, for example, I've been told, anyways, I don't read the Jain, I haven't read the Jain scriptures, that there's no mention, really, of, of Buddhism. In, in, and, you know, they were contemporaries. So it's kind of interesting not to have that sort of outside perspective from the time of the Buddha about um, what they were like. So there might be, you know, there might be a little bias of, um, you know, especially when two religious groups come up against each other, the ones who are telling the story may uh, put it in a, slant it in a certain way, shall we say. So um, this was a a uh, society of class you know we have later there became caste system in in India but at that time it was kind of more primitive ca- uh, class system economic class where you had the brahmins um, uh, were the highest uh, class and these were really the priest the priestly class the ones that transmitted the knowledge and then you had the kasitias the warrior class and the, these were the rulers and the Buddha came from that uh, socio-economical layer. And then you had the uh, vices, which were kind of like merchants. And then uh, finally you had the sudas, which were like the common laborers, you know, and they did labor and farm work and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> there were two main religious groups at that time. There were the, the um, Brahmanism, uh, which was uh, come down to us from the the Vedas. These are <clears throat> ancient teachings um, that were an oral tradition. Probably uh, preceding Buddhism by a thousand years, maybe. It's not really known. Um, but Veda means knowledge. So there's the Vedas. And then is uh, kind of a Upanishads were a later part, and this was probably coming up around the time of uh, Buddhism and, and afterwards. And as sometimes you'll hear this also called Vedanta, which is, means end of the of the, the Vedas. So they were kind of closed at that point. I mean, they, they continued to be transmitted, and they're still still around today. I think many people have heard of the Rig Veda, and there's there's several books in that. And so Brahmanism was the main religion. 
at the time. And this was a, um, and I'm not a scholar on this, so I hope there's no um, Brahmins here (laughs) take me to task. But it was basically um, a religion that uh, had to do with gods and there was rituals and the the Brahmins, this this higher uh, level of um, the society, were the priests that would carry on these rituals. They would, you know, maybe sacrifice sometimes animals or just um, symbolically, and they would be they do little fire rituals and incantations. And they would they would um, the Vedas were considered a sacred uh, uh, and secret um, body of knowledge that that would be transmitted from father to son in in, in lineage in, in, in this way. Um, so that was the main uh, religion. And so what they were doing with the rituals, they were supplicating the gods for both a, a good present life and a good rebirth. So rebirth, the, the idea of reincarnation was very much around at that time. And then from this milieu, this this group of uh, counterculture group, shall we say, of uh, samanas developed. And these were people who would uh, wander. Sometimes they would be in groups. Sometimes they'd be on their own. And they, you know, they um, challenged the ideas from the Vedas in this hierarchy, this, you know, this very uh, hierarchical religion of the time. And they would debate and they would meditate. Um, we think that meditation may have been in India um, maybe two, three thousand years. We're not really sure, but there's a, a, a civilization that predates this one we're talking about here called the Indus Valley Civilization. We don't have a lot of information, but there was some epigraphic information that's, you know, rock inscriptions and some pottery shards and different things that show uh, pictures of people in a, um, in like a lotus position, presumably meditating. So there's some thought that meditation goes back a, a long ways and that um, that was carried down through this con- counterculture, some of these ideas about Meditation. They'd also do these ascetic practices, and in the suttas we get these really vivid pictures of what it's like. You know, the, um, the Buddha describes um, fasting. I think I might have a picture here. Yeah, he describes um, starving his body, and this is there's a number of these um, statues, but you can kind of see his ribs showing, and he's emaciated and hollow eyes, and how. You know the 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 idea. This was before he became awakened. This was what he what he tried along the way um, was to starve the body. You know, as a way to burn up karma and to um, maybe transcend the body and to have this experience of of the mind becoming awakened. This was, and so these shramanas did that. They would stand on one leg or they would sleep on a bed of nails or, um, you know, when I was in India on this pilgrimage, I saw. Um, People, you know, they would paint their bodies up and they go around naked or they would, um, you know, keep their arm raised for, you know, I don't know, years. Um, there was this one guy who was the milk baba and all he did was drink milk. You know, that was his spiritual practice. I mean, he probably did other other things as well, but that was he subsisted upon. So it's kind of an interesting, I don't know, way of trying to find spiritual truth. But, you know, and, and it's not new. I mean, I think other religions have looked at torturing the body in order to, to, to tra- attempt to transcend it. Um, in the Upanishads, we get some themes uh, that, were, that are kind of 
either directly or indirectly um, countered or um, questioned or elaborated on in the suttas, and that in the uh, Upanishads we have um, this whole idea of, of Brahman. That's the name. That's a name of like the ultimate god in, the, in Brahmanism. Brahman. All those words kind of, you know, we have Brahmins, the people, the, spri- the priestly class, and then Brahman, the um, the god, and uh, is like this universal god, and Atman is the um, the individual soul, and so the the in Upanishads there's this idea that th- these are one, this, this that, um, um, and you know we hear that today. I think that's a kind of a popular notion, and it's not. I just want to clarify, it's not really a Buddhist notion. It's it's more coming out of this um, uh, shramanism and uh, well, coming out of the Upanishads specifically, but it was it was definitely um, taken up by the the samanas uh, at the time. And then there's this idea of reincarnation of samsara, where you live. Um, and this this is again this is pre-Buddhist. Um, but, uh, the Buddha kind of changed that a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, that our souls go from life to life, you know, just like someone would change a uh, set of clothes. Um, you live a life, then you die, and your soul transmigrates to another body, you know, whether that's another human or, you know, an animal or, or what have you. So that's, that's and that's, um, some Hindu uh, sects still believe that today, but that was very much um, coming out of the Upanishads and a little bit touched on in the Vedas. And... Um, this idea of samsara, the cycle of uh, rebirth. Um, which literally means wandering on. And um, this idea is also developed in the suttas, but uh, and rebirth is is throughout the suttas. And this is, you know, one thing with we were talking earlier about um, uh, John Peacock and and Stephen Batchelor and people who say, well, you know, rebirth is a vestige of the Brahmanic society that the Buddha came from, and it's not really true Dharma. This is, you know, I'm paraphrasing. They might not use those tr- same words. Um, but it's really hard for me in my, you know, very, should I say, uh, beginnings, my very, I don't know, uh, junior role to really uh, get behind that idea fully because they're, they're everywhere and just from different angles. In fact, one of the places in several suttas, the Buddha talks about what's right view. You know, we've got this noble eightfold path. The very first factor is right view, and and there there's suttas that say right view is understanding karma and rebirth. So it's hard for me to really throw the baby out with the bathwater, or, or, or to say that you know that all of these elements are fictional, teachings on karma and rebirth are fictional, and not really you know true truly what what's Buddha vachana, the word of the Buddha. Uh, when it's so steeped in the um, in the suttas, and you see it over and over again from different angles, but I I would say that it's developed differently. You know, this whole this word I'm using the Sanskrit term karma because that's a more common one in our uh, you know that's kind of 
crept over into English, and in Pali it's Kama. Um, and we'll read a passage later uh, where um, the Buddha defines Kama, and it's, it's very different than, than what we might think. Um, so these samanas were homeless, and they went around uh, doing these practices and being supported by society. They would go on um, alms rounds with the begging bowls, and they would be fed by the, um, the population. And that's, that's a tradition that um, still goes on today in Buddhism in many countries. And actually, you can, the, um, a little plug for the Saranaloka, the Saranaloka nuns in San Francisco, the um, Aya Nanda Bodhi and Aya Santa Chita teach here, um, I think once a month, maybe twice. Third Fridays. Third Fridays, thank you. Yeah, and they're wonderful. Um, there are two women who have been in the Thai forest tradition, uh, practitioners, and they, they could not find a way to become fully ordained like the, the, their brothers, the monks, um, because that tradition had uh, lost that um, lineage. And so they left, you know, with a, a lot of support and advice from um, many monks and nuns and started their, you know, broke, uh, went out on their own and have started a full ordination lineage <coughs> for Theravadan women. They didn't start it. There's this movement that's going on here in Northern California and really all over the world where women can become full, fully ordained bhikkhunis. And uh, it's really exciting times, I think, um, to have that, you know, uh, opportunity, you know, because women, uh, there are some women, you know, not, not all women, but some women want to do that. So um, we have the Saranoloka nuns uh, come here and um, they go on alms rounds in the city, you know, with their robes and their begging bowls. And, you know, in fact, actually today um, they're having a, uh, what is it, a blessing ceremony? Or there's, yeah, in San Francisco they're having some special um, ceremony that they're, that they're doing about this. So. Yeah. They represent a lineage, you know, a direct, the direct transmission. So, you know, I'm, I'm learning about this from coming here to the Sati Center and reading books and, you know, going to daylongs at this. But they, they've been part of a practicing tradition for, you know, since the time of the Buddha of, you know, men and women, you know, who are actually learning from a, a preceptor, a teacher, you know, how to meditate, how to do these chants, how to, you know, be a good Buddhist. So it's a, it's a real living tradition, and they're, you know, they're taking it back to its, its roots by their, their ordination. So that's kind of the background of um, the Buddha's time uh, that we're entering, the Buddha's thought world. Um, and now we're going to actually... Um, ask the question of, you know, who was the Buddha and, you know, where did he come from? And, you know, I mean, he's the founder of this religion, you know, and what what is that? A lot of statues around here of him. So uh, the Buddha means awake. Uh, That's the translation of the Pali term, Buddha. And um, what he mostly refers to himself, you'll see that term sometimes in the suttas, but mostly he calls himself 
himself the Tathagata. Which uh, is a kind of a strange epithet. It means basically the thus gone one or the thus come one. <clears throat> um, which, you know, doesn't in English at least doesn't tell you that much. Um, it might mean uh, the one who has um, come and uh, surmounted this round of rebirths, this samsara. It's har- it's hard to you know, to be sure. But that's what he often calls himself and other people refer to him as. Sometimes you'll see this t- term also just be a generic term, meaning an awake, someone who's awakened, you know, fully enlightened. And arahant uh, is another term, generic term for someone who's awakened. Arahant. Or you might, sometimes it's spelled arahant. So, um, in the suttas themselves, there's a little bit of biographical information about the Buddha, but mostly he didn't talk about himself, you know, and he didn't talk about where he came from and all of that. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, what he was, what was important um, was the, the Dharma. In fact, if we go to page 21, there's a quote there. This is out in the context of of somebody who comes to him and sees and um, really um, finds that his composure is, you know, really beautiful, and he's just got, you know, this this really aura around him, and the guy is going on about his qualities, and the the Buddha says um, says some things, but one thing he says is truly seeing the Dharma, one sees me; seeing me, one sees the Dharma. So basically, he's um, in this passage, I think, saying that he's. Uh, not really a, this heroic figure, but he's somebody who's, you know, uh, teaching the Dharma, and that's really his role. Now, if you, uh, we're talking today about the Pali Canon and the Theravada perspective of, of all of this. If you go to Mahayana, you'll get a, a, a different picture of, of the image of who the Buddha was according to the suttas that, that we're going to go into now. And um, in this, in the Pali Canon, there's different versions, you know. So you've got what's in the suttas, but then those those other books, and then the commentaries have um, real elaborations. And some of the stories about the Buddha's life are pretty fantastical, and you know, kind of taking on some elements that seem myth- mythological or just you know, just really far-fetched. I mentioned the Jataka tales, so there's this thought that the Buddha was um, a uh, made a uh, resolve to become a Buddha in a former life. You know, many, many uh, eons uh, in the past, uh, he was a, um, uh, a Samana uh, named Sumedho, and this, there was there's supposedly cycles of Buddhas, and they discover the Dharma, teach it, die, it lives for a while, and then it dies out. So this is kind of the model. And, you know, whether this is true, or I, again, I have no idea, but this is, you know, the kind of the traditional view. And this um, 
this current Buddha, who's also Buddha Gautama, sometimes you might hear that name, and it's um, he was born as Siddhartha Gautama. in this life that he became a Buddha. So he wasn't born a Buddha. He was, uh, um, but supposedly in the time, many eons back in the time of um, the Buddha, Sumedho, a different Buddha, he took a vow, the Bodhisattva vow, to become a, a Buddha and to practice you know, throughout these lives to, to forestall his um, own awakening to become a Buddha to, uh, teacher of, of the Dharma in another era, you know, in another time. This is this is the legend. And you might have heard this term bodhisattva vow. It's very um, it's a very um, well-developed concept in uh, Mahayana, uh, for example, Zen or in, uh, and other traditions. Um, it kind of shifted over time. So um, in the suttas, and Venerable Analyo, again, kind of has, a, uh, he's got a book that goes into all of this in detail. In the suttas, this is the only real example, you know, of the Buddha taking this, this vow. Um, but it's really become actually a path of practice in Mahayana. It, it become more evolved so that, you know, really the ideal, rather than in, in Theravadan and in, in, in our lineage, um, has been that you practice um, the Dharma and you, you work towards your own awakening. And this Bodhisattva vow is you um, practice you, but you forestall your own awakening so that you can um, help all other sentient beings, you know, and that you take this vow. That's getting a little off topic there, but I just um, wanted to kind of go a little bit into the Bodhisattva vow. So he then practiced these paramis. These in the Theravadan tradition are these ten uh, perfections. It starts with uh, dana, generosity, and sila, and, and there's there's ten of these in 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 each life, supposedly, he had a lesson to learn and uh, practiced these and, and developed them. And he was different, you know, as I said, mentioned before, he's animals and different peoples. And he, sometimes he was kings and a king or a beggar. And sometimes he was a woman. And then um, in his last life, he uh, was born Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama into a family. Now, legend has it it was a, a, a king uh, you know, a very wealthy king, but is probably just a, um, you know, a small confederate, a republic. And, he, you know, his father was the ruler of this this uh, small area. And um, he was supposedly raised in, you know, luxury and comfort in this in this life. And it was predicted when he was born that he would either become a great ruler or a, um, a spiritual, either a great ruler of the kingdom or a uh, an enlightened teacher. That was the the prediction. Um, his father, of course, wanted him to take over his family business, which is running the, this you know, the small um, province, and uh, he, so he supposedly tried to shelter him and keep him from uh, experiencing, you know, dukkha or the real world. You know, so he wouldn't have a motivation to then um, ask these these questions that, you know, start people on their spiritual journey. But supposedly, at the age of 29, he encountered what's called the four heavenly messengers, 
uh, old age, sickness and death, and then a, um, a samana, you know, a wandering spiritual practitioner. And uh, supposedly that opened up his um, eyes that, you know, this life in the palace uh, was not for him. And then he, he left. Uh, he left his home to become a samana, a wandering ascetic, to find out, you know, what is the answer? You know, in, in, in the suttas, he, he says, in fact, I think we'll read a passage in a minute. So he was born in Lumbini. This is near, uh, in modern-day Nepal. You can't really see the border here, but it's just right over the border from India. This is India, modern-day, and that's Nepal. And he was born in Lumbini and raised for 29 years in Kapilavatu here. So at the age of 29, he leaves that, and the the story goes that he um, just he was married, and he just had his uh, his son was just born, um, Rahula, who um, he leaves his wife and his son, and uh, renounces that worldly life and becomes this wandering aesthetic. Any questions or comments or anything at this point? Yes. Every time I read about that part, about him just taking off, I, I kind of wonder about that. You know, he just, is there an elaboration to that story? Who took care of them? Did he ever communicate back? I mean, it seems like a really heartless thing to follow your own whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to take that story. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have trouble with that. My wife, for example, <laughs> don't you do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, you know, I think in the context, um, his wife and his child were cared for. They were, you know, they were part of this this kingdom, and they, you know, they had, you know, they were taken care of uh, financially or you know physically. Um, his, I mean, the way I think uh, the traditional view of that would be is that. Um, saw beyond his limited life and who he was in this family unit and as this soon-to-be ruler of this kingdom and said, there's this real problem here, you know, and we'll get into the Four Noble Truths, but there's this real problem, old age, sickness, and death. Everyone here has to experience that. No matter what I do right now in this moment, that is going to be my fate, that's going to be my son's fate, that's going to be my every, everyone I see. And we know, we know that, right? We're all going to die. And so... The, you know, the tradition has it that he saw beyond his personal needs and ex- experiences and decided to, you know, and he'd been cultivating this, you know, for all these lives, decided to, um, this is it, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to figure out the solution to this problem, this problem of dukkha, and find a way out of this suffering and this, you know, this constant samsara, this rebirth. And... Um, the story has a good ending, you know, he does go back, um, he becomes awakened, we'll talk about it in a minute, he does go back uh, within, within five years to his hometown, and his, um, <clears throat> his son, well his son is seven at that time, this product is probably going to um, get you more ticked off, but <laughs> he, the, his, his mom, uh, the son's mom, the Buddha's ex-wife says, oh there's your father, the m- monk, Go get your inheritance from him. 
you know, and of course he's a wandering ascetic. He's, you know, he's a leader of the Sangha now, of this Buddhist Sangha. He's fully awakened. He comes back to his hometown. So little Rahula, who's seven, goes and sees his dad and says, you know, I, you know, there's there's different versions of what he says, but basically um, he says, oh, I want my inheritance. My, or my mom told me to get my inheritance. He says, okay, and he turns to his lead disciple, Sariputta, and says, ordain him as a monk. So he, you know, this is maybe part that gets sounds like it gets worse. He takes the son away from the mother in the village, and he becomes, you know, a um, a little, you know, junior monk. And then he practices, and eventually. As I mentioned in the Majjhima Nikaya, it talks about different teachings his dad gives him over time. He becomes fully awakened and uh, an arhant. And um, the Buddha's father goes to the Buddha after this incident and says, you know, you know, now you, first you left and, and now you're taking, you know, your, your ex-wife's, you know, only son away. And uh, he, he asked him, you know, in the future, could you get permission from the parents to ordain? And that became a, a rule, actually, is that you have to have you have to be a certain age and you have to get the parent's permission. But the Buddha's wife, eventually, she joins the Sangha. The Buddha's um, uh, stepmother, Maha Pajabati, the, the statue out there, she, who raises him, she becomes the first uh, bhikkhuni. Um, and then later, um, the Buddha's ex-wife joins the bhikkhuni Sangha and they both become fully, or, uh, full, fully awakened. And so a lot of people, uh, and the, I think the Buddha's father reaches the first stage of awakening before he dies. So, um, I mean, at least the way the, his, the story goes, you know, he, he, I won't say atoned, but he made good, you know, he, he, the Buddha had this vision of leaving his family that it was for a greater good, and then he comes back and, you know, um, I think in the Terigata, there's um, his wife's uh, poem in there, but she wasn't um, a very prominent figure, at least in the, the, how it's recorded in the suttas. But, she, you know, the, the story goes, she became fully awakened and, and his son. So, yes. Yes, yeah, that's, that was, he was born as that, and then... We're talking about Buddha. Yes, he becomes the Buddha. The Buddha we are talking about. Yes. He said something about there were other... There were other Buddhas, yeah. So he's he's the Buddha of this age. So he's, he's our Buddha. Buddha. He's our Buddha. Right. But before him, according to the legend, there are there have been many Buddhas. Okay. Maybe endless number of Buddhas. And um, there has been a lot written about Jesus Christ and how some people are doubtful that he... That men like that existed? Has there been any doubts about the existence of Buddha at all? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're raising a doubt. So I think a lot of people have doubts. Is this a I mythical no, figure? I was he real? I think most of the scholars think there was a person who was named Siddhartha Gautama. There was a, a Buddha. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to triangulate these teachings from different teachers. You know, it seems like there was one person who taught all of this. You know, I mean, there's enough as I said, internal and external consistency from the records we have, you know, which are, are minimal. You know, I mean, I mean, it's a big body of, of knowledge, but there's not, you know, a, you know, there's not like digital recordings or videos of, of this person from that time. We have the, probably the closest thing from that time period would be these rock inscriptions, you know, and they talk about who the Buddha was, you know, so that was within a, um, you know, a couple hundred years of his life and death. And um, most people think, you know, that it'd be hard for 
this mythological for it to be a myth for that it, it was it really was a person a human being you know most most scholars and of course you know traditional Theravadans would say you know what you're crazy of course there isn't you know this is all true in gospel so we have to kind of for our own selves balance what we believe in and how to hold these teachings and and the, this figure you know we take these refugees the we say I go for refuge uh, in the Buddha the Dhamma and the Sangha and you know what that means for us as practitioners you know is a, is a whole other topic and also you said you said you said that Buddhism was a religion yes well that's that, a, a, there is a debate that, uh, that I heard there is a debate yes um, I mean I think if you look at it in terms of outside outsiders they would say Buddhism is definitely a religion you know you got you got a historical figure I mean in, in many uh, versions of Buddhism there are gods um, you know there's there's religious elements within Buddhism I think most Americans see or a lot of Americans see Buddhism as maybe a philosophy or a way of living the Dharma is you know a set of principles that they can you know get behind and and you know some of us come from religious backgrounds where we don't really like that term religion um, or you know we prefer maybe spirituality or just you know f- uh, psychology you know some people consider the Dharma you know just a brilliant psychology so we have to you know the languaging you have to find for yourself if you consider it a religion for me it's a religion because it has all of the traditional elements of a religion you know there's there's some faith elements there's some teachings um, but I also the way I engage it and the way I teach it is as a as a psychology you know as a way to you deal practically with the problem of suffering and how to have a better life now you know how to, to how to not suffer thank you you're welcome um, okay so you're you're saying it's a religion so then how do you deal with this thing about Buddhists don't believe in God I mean that that argument that's pretty basic to a lot of people yeah well um, just to clarify a little I don't want to be too picky here but um, the Buddha taught and there's many sutta passages where he's talking to a god Uh, what I think Buddhism denies is that there's this omniscient omnipotent being you know much like we would in the um, Judeo-Christian sense of a you know of 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 this this uh, being who is in you know who controls everything so Buddhism denies that and I would say says there were many gods but these gods that that you see in the suttas they were all impermanent and they were also you know flawed in fact it's it's better to be born a human where you're kind of forced into practicing towards the goal I mean the whole goal of of what the Buddha taught was to end suffering by becoming fully awake I mean that's there's a passage in there we'll read Um, so getting back to your question more directly um, Buddhism would say yeah there isn't this super God that's in charge of everything you know maybe they would frame it like maybe there's this karma there's um, uh, that this round of rebirths that's been going on for cycles and you know we are all a product of our kar- karmic results this is getting a little philosophical so there, it's kind of a different shift that there's causes and conditions that lead to what's happening right in this moment and instead of it being there's like this overlord who's pulling the puppet strings that doesn't exist in Buddhism so there's not that uh, version of, a, of an omniscient omnipotent God 
I, I kind of, just for me personally, I kind of look at it like the Native American great spirit sort of thing that, you know, it's nature and the laws of nature. I, I, I have a hard time with that. You know, I have a really hard time with that part of it. Thank you. And if we were a Mahayana group, we would, you know, that we might have a different perspective because in some Mahayana versions, you know, the Buddha, and even in Theravadan, the Buddha is elevated to the level of a god. You won't find that in the suttas, you know, as, the, you know, I mean, there, there are actually there are some passages in the suttas where that are have very elaborate um, descriptions of how wonderful, you know, there's the 32 marks of a great man, which talk about these, you know, almost supernatural aspects to the Buddha's anatomy. And, um, you know, there's a there's a passage in the Majjhima Nikaya about how, you know, these mythological elements of his birth, you know, and if you read those, they, they sound like they're describing a, a god. But, you know, from other passages, it, it's it's kind of hard to argue that the Buddha was a god. But, um, you know, we all have to kind of sort through that ourselves. I think a lot of the problem arises when we try to impose Western terminology on non-Western ideas. Um, there certainly were concepts of gods in Indian cosmology, but if you look at the Wheel of Samsara, you'll see that gods are actually lower than humans. And um, the human being is the one that has the ability to fully develop and to awaken. The gods don't. So it's a, it's a very different concept. But there, there was this idea of what we would consider mythological creatures. In some ways, it's possibly useful to compare them to the Greek and Roman gods, which were had very human elements to them. Um, they weren't impermanent in the sense that you were talking about, but they weren't the, the omniscient-type god that we think of in the, the Abrahamic religions. Maybe that helps clarify it a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that. that that's great. Okay, well, um, when I went to Nepal and India, they were, the, among Buddhists, they were talking about uh, Maitreya, the Buddhist Buddha to come in the future. And uh, that's sort of a deity he, they portray him as a, you know, coming Lord, God, something like this. So could you explain that in your uh, opinion about Maitreya? I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. And another question is, Buddha has so many different connotations, like Siddhartha, Sakamuni, uh, Buddha. Which one is the most, um, I mean, Buddha is the most um, relevant name for us to, you know, follow, or the Sakamuni, I heard about Sakamuni. What is that exactly? Uh, What's the meaning of the Sakamuni? Um, you know, I think Shakyamuni Buddha refer is kind of a more of a Mahayana designation of this particular Buddha. Um, I mean, most commonly we use the Buddha. Uh, most commonly, the the Buddha called himself the Tathagata. That doesn't really roll off the tongue very well, though, in you know popular conversation. Um, this this uh, Maitreya. <coughs> There's only one passage in the 
in the suttas that refer to the Buddha Maitreya. And, the you know, this is more of a uh, post-canonical idea that's been developed over time. And there's even, you know, cults of Maitreya. I mean, in, in Mahayana, there's been some real development of this person. But if, you know, getting back to our model of there's being these multiple Buddhas, you know, that um, there's no... You know, and from a Buddhist perspective, there's no beginning to time. You know, we I think modern science considers that there was a big bang as the beginning of the universe. Although maybe there's some question that the universe expands and then contracts, and this is you know we have these cycles, and it's kind of hard. You know, I mean, kind of getting into modern uh, astronomy and and um, what uh, cosmology, what's that? Physics. But um, from the Buddhist perspective, there's a beginningless, you know, samsara goes on forever. And in these, this, you know, incredibly long period of time, there are these multiple Buddhas. Ours was um, Buddha Gautama, born as Siddhartha Gautama, and then became awakened. And then the next one is Maitreya, who's supposedly, you know, is a bodhisattva now living multiple lives and perfecting his paramis, and sometimes you'll see statues of Maitreya. Sometimes he's depicted standing. Um, supposedly he's, I don't know, 10 meters tall. Or I mean, there's different mythological elements that get... I saw many statues of mm-hmm. Maitreya, yes. Yeah. Many different um, monasteries in Tibet, especially. Um, those monasteries, they do have prominent statues of Maitreya and seems like a giving a lot of hope to the Tibetan Buddhist, especially, I don't know, for because of the situation. But Yeah, yeah, a lot of people uh, have devotional practices to Maitreya. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot about the different cults around it or different, um, you know, how Mahayana, you know, the exact way to represent how Mahayana um, views Maitreya. But it, it, is, it is a concept also in Theravadan, Buddhism. But I'd like to get back. Are there any anything else about this uh, point? Okay. Um, so back to our um, Siddhartha. Go- oh, that was maybe I. Maybe that was kind of. A, I'm not familiar with this, but uh, so this has to be loosened up here. Yeah, so that yours needs to be loosened up and then, and then tightened up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, a little more stability. Thank you. Looks a little unstable there. We'll see, see how it goes. Uh, probably a little harder to see on the other side of the room. I'll, I'll turn it when I start writing again. Um, so, uh, you know, the legend has it, and there's passages. Uh, we'll read one in a minute, where the um, Buddha um, practices these aesthetic practices for six years, um, and then starves to the point of near death, and realizes, you know. Uh, not getting anywhere with this. Um, so uh, he leaves that practice and, and takes some food because he, ne- he realizes that the mind cannot function properly to achieve awakening if, it's, if the body is emaciated. You know, and this is, I think this is a very important concept in, in um, Buddhism, 
that, you know, the mind and the body work together, you know, and that we can't just, you know, disembody our, our heads, you know, and when we, when we take meditation classes, they're very much about getting into the, the body, you know, and re-inhabiting the body and being connected to it. So um, he, let's read a passage where he, um, in page 28, There's a passage, uh, this is from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya uh, 26. Um, it's also found in the Samyutta Nikaya, I think we're at, no, Majjhima Nikaya 36, sorry. Um, starting on I Thought. And um, would anyone like to read that out loud into the microphone perhaps to... Um, because what I like to do now is get, kind of get a little bit out of all this theory and get into actual the suttas. So this is an actual sutta passage, and we'll start reading it and getting used to some of the, the language. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I thought, whatever priests or contemplatives in the past have felt painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None have been greater than this. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the future will feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their strivings. This is the utmost. None will be greater than this. Whatever priest or contemplatives in the present are feeling painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None is greater than this. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to awakening? So this, um, yeah, this marks his departure from, you know, this practices that he did for six, six years. Um, <clears throat> and before he um, did those, right after he left home, supposedly, he learned medita- the meditative arts. You know, presumably he hadn't meditated much uh, before leaving home. And he went and studied with the greatest teachers um, of the time and, and learned uh, how to meditate and, um, and even mastered the meditative absorptions, the jhanas. And he talks about this and it's mentioned in some of the passages from the suttas. And, um, those, and those, those systems were believed to be awakening. So if you get to these very high states of where the mind's very concentrated, the people, in, and it's probably still happens today, believe that they were awakened. Uh, but he would come out of these states and he'd realize that he still had dukkha. He was still suffering. So um, he left, they, they even offered him his, uh, you know, the, uh, to be the leader of the group. And he realized that, he, you know, that that wasn't the way, you know, that, that those meditative states by themselves were not the way. So... Um, why don't we go to, uh, he took some nutrition after realizing that striving the body, uh, subjecting the body to that wasn't the way. And then on page 29, would anyone like to read this very important insight that he had that led the way to his awakening? Oh, there's more to read, so. I thought, 
I recall once when my father, the Sakin, was working, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities, but that pleasure is not easy to achieve with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some nourishment or some food, some rice and porridge. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. Now, five monks had been attending on me thinking, if Gotama, our contemplative, achieves some higher state, he will tell us. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me thinking, Gautama, the contemplative, is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion and is backsliding into abundance. Thank you. Yeah, so that's, um, so basically he had a childhood memory, you know, as an adult, he had a, remembered back to a time where he was sitting under this tree and remembered uh, being in a, a jhanic state, a meditative state, and that uh, he had this insight, like this, this, there's something here that could lead to the goal that I've been seeking all along. But I can't do this with this emaciated body, so he eats the food, and you know, immediately he's kind of rejected from the other, uh, the, the five other members of his, he's in a small group of six, he's the leader of the group. Um, they're very much thinking that, you know, you've got to, you know, starve the body in order to get anywhere. So, you know, what he's doing is pretty radical and he gets rejected by them, at least at that moment. They, they come back. But um, we'll skip over the next passage. Basically, um, he states that he took the solid food and then he practiced um, this meditation and, and achieve these jhanic states and he achieved the, the first, the four jhanas um, and that each one, you know, kind of builds on the other, these, uh, these states of um, meditation. And I don't want to um, go uh, too far into those, those jhanas. I think a lot of people here uh, know about those or heard about them. Um, our Richard Shankman on the, just to give his book a plug, um, you know, needless to say, the whole concept of jhana in meditation practice is controversial, but Richard Shankman's on the board of the Sati Center. He teaches here. In fact, he, he gave a day long, I think about a year or two ago, on the first three suttas of the Buddha, which um, two of them are in the book, and we'll go over them a little bit. But this book is called, and it's in the, uh, the reference section, The Experience of Samadhi, An In-Depth Exploration of Buddhist Meditation, so he um, he really looks at you know the the role of the jhanas um, in meditation practice and the and the controversy is the first part of the book and the second part of the book is he goes to like the 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 ten you know ten big name teachers in in Western vipassana movement like uh, he interviews Ajahn Jeff and Jack Cornfield and um, I think Pao Alk. He, he interviews quite a few uh, teachers in our in our lineage and. 
you know, ask them, you know, what do you think these jhanas, are they, do we need to do them or what's the role? You know, just a lot of very specific questions. So it's a, it's a good uh, book and a lot of passages from the suttas relevant to that. So would you, uh, on page 31, so he, he went through these meditative states and then um, could you read starting at page uh, 31, please? When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, i.e., one birth, two, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of cosmic contraction, many eons of cosmic expansion, many eons of cosmic contraction and expansion, There I had such a name, belonged to such a clan, had such an appearance. Such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such the end of my life. Passing away from that state, I re-arose there. There, too, I had such a name, belonged to such a clan, had such an appearance. Such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such the end of my life. Passing away from that state, I re-arose here. Thus, I remembered my manifold past lives in their modes and details. Thank you. Thank you. So that was, um, he had three knowledges on the night of his awakening, and that describes the first one. So from these um, mental concentration states, he then um, had a mind that was concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained imperturbability. That's a pretty (laughs) awesome-sounding mind that could you know, really see through the reality of things. And this first knowledge was, what, of, of rebirth, you know, of, of his past lives. So um, there's a lot of passages in here that, uh, in the suttas that speak to you know, the Buddha acknowledging that there is rebirth. Um, the, uh, the secular Buddhists would probably say uh, about this passage that you know, we're reborn in each moment, and that what he's talking about is just you know various mind moments that he was reborn into, where he had you know such and such um, an identity you know and we could change name and clan to identity and appearance. Our appearance is changing. This is what his food or his conditions of his life were. Um, so that's you know this is kind of where some of that controversy on whether there is. Um, you know, this is metaphorical or is this true? And I think we all have to kind of find our own, uh, navigate our own way through that. And there there are people like Bhikkhu Bodhi who will tell you, um, at least he has an essay, you can get it on Access to Insight um, website. I think it's, he's got a couple about um, Carmen Rebirth, but, and also um, Ajahn Jeff, you know, really think it's an uh, essential element to get, you know, um, the full implication of the Dharma that, um, you know, certainly starting out, you don't need a belief in that, but at some point uh, they, they say, and, I, you know, I'm not here to argue either way, that um, you need to have that faith in, um, in rebirth to, um, to, to fully get, the, I guess, the teachings and to put them into practice to awakening. But our secular Buddhists would scoff at that. <laughs> okay, who wants to read the second knowledge gained on page 32? 
when the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. I saw, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, beings passing away and reappearing. And I discerned how they are inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, in accordance with their kamma. These beings, who were endowed with bad conduct of body, speech, and mind, who reviled the noble ones, held wrong views, and undertook actions under the influence of wrong views, with the breakup of the body after death, have reappeared in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms in hell. But these beings, who were endowed with good conduct of body, speech, and mind, who did not revile the noble ones, who held right views, and undertook actions under the influence of right views, with the breakup of the body after death, have reappeared in the good destinations in the heavenly world. Thus, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, and I discerned how they are inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, in accordance with their kama. Thank you. Any questions or comments on that passage? Yes, that's a good question. Um, usually, the uh, that's probably a translation of Arya. And this term has a long history in... Uh, most recently, we know it from uh, Arya. We know it from <clears throat> what, you know, the Nazis took that term. And that's a term that uh, applied initially to the um, migrant group of peoples that came from Central Asia and settled and conquered India. <clears throat> and they became really the Brahmin the Brahmin. Uh, or it's thought, anyways, we, again, we don't know any of this for certain, became the Brahmin um, uh, class uh, of society. And we encounter this term a lot in uh, Buddhism, um, in, the, in the suttas. Uh, most commonly, you'll hear it as the Four Noble Truths. You'll, this is Arya, Satcha, uh, this term. And um, the Noble Ones, you'll see a lot too. And, and they can mean... Um, people who are awakened or people who are on the path to awakening. And it's mo- so it's most commonly m- meant in the uh, suttas as um, people in the sangha, you know, who are uh, awakened. You and I discussed it a little bit. So... Um, in the glossary here, it's intention. So it's intention when it's used, the word is used on a daily basis. It's intention when it's applied to your actions, right? And, but it, 
karma and the way that I've heard it used a lot also is something that Buddha taught, right? So if you do good things in this life, then you get into, um, what, what, what does he call those realms? Uh, the realms, he says. The realms, realms. oh, the good and bad destinations. Yeah, and if you don't do good things, you, your actions are bad in this life, you go into, how, the, how would you read? Well, you know, I think the term karma we have in our culture <clears throat> has really become kind of a, it's kind of maybe a caricature of what, what it's taught about in here. And we, we have the same term also in Hinduism and Brahmanism. And, um, you know, there's a passage in here, I can't remember which page, where the Buddha says, by karma, by this word karma, I meet intention. So basically, our karma is, according to this, is what... <clears throat> What we do uh, volitionally, what we do willfully, you know, the, the, and a lot of it is, you know, obviously subconscious. You know, when we make a decision, let's say, to say something to a loved one, you know, we can say it very kindly. You know, we may have a lot of motivations. That's another term behind what we're saying. Um, but that's really uh, the karma that we are um, living in that moment, and it's creating, according to you know, the law of karma, the, the, the teachings, it's creating karmic results that then will ripen and have, you know, some impact in our life. And I think that's what this passage gets to, is that because of these beings, um, they're, you know, they're living their lives and they're passing away and their fate is um, in accordance with their karma, you know, that people who had bad conduct of body, speech, and mind end up in undesirable destinations. And it's not always linear. There's other suttas where, you know, there's other things that can, other than karma, that can influence the rebirth. But um, I think for like on a practical meditative way to, to work with karma is just to begin to notice in our lives when we do certain things, what are the outcomes? Just, you know, we don't have to go into multiple lives. We can say, okay, when, and we all know this, I mean, this is, when I'm angry, I'm more likely to say something that's hurtful and unskillful. When I do that, there's repercussions. You know, if I say to my spouse, for example, something really, you know, uh, harsh, that'll, you know, probably hurt her feelings. And then, you know, maybe she'll retaliate. And so it's just to look at the uh, interaction, you know, what our intentions are and how they manifest in our actions, our speech and our thoughts. And then what, what's the ripple effect? What, you know, what's the outcome of that? And, um, it's just here it's applied to the cycle of birth and rebirth, that's all. Yes, yeah, and that's, that's the whole, I mean, that's the, the full teachings is, you know, according to, the, and again, we have to decide for ourselves where we are in this, but according to the suttas, it's not just what's going to happen later that day, you know, when I, you know, kick the dog or whatever. It's, you know, or if I'm very generous and do something kind for someone, it's, you know, that's going to affect me for years to come and lifetimes to come. And, you know, something that's very heavily, uh, a heavily karmic um, action, like killing somebody, um, you know, there's, there's, in here we'll hear a story about the Buddha's um, other cousin, Devadatta, who tries to kill the Buddha and tries to create a schism in the Sangha and usurp control of the, of the, the, the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis. Um, he, according to the, the commentaries, had a really weighty karma, you know, really suffered in hell for, for many, many lifetimes. Um, so. 
Yes. Um, that just happens to trigger um, a concern or something I don't like about this whole idea is um, I, I uh, know people that are very, very sick and suffering and just have, they feel horrible situations that have happened to them and they have the question, what have I done wrong? And so I just have issue with that whole idea about the good and the bad and the judgment and and creating a a um, a, f- a, f- a a restricted form behind these words of good and bad and it's for me it seems like this uh, rebirth is um, just about the energy. There, that there's going to be a follow-along between one event and the other, and to look at that and notice that there's a relationship. So, anyway. yeah, that, that's fantastic. Thank you for saying that, um, because yeah, we can get really caught up in that, and then we start to blame people. You know, I mean, we've all said, oh, that's just their karma. You know. And, you know, that's really, um, you know, we talk about compassion. That's really, you know, what we call the near enemy of compassion. It's like pity or it's blaming someone. It's, you know, there's a lot of judgment in that. And I think from a Buddhist perspective is um, not to really say, you know, this person is uh, suffering now because they did something bad in the past. It's just to realize that we're all at the, the whim, not the whim, but the, you know, we all are, uh, subject to the karma that we've accumulated and to not personalize it like saying, you know, there's nothing I can do in this moment about even things I did a week ago. It's done. It's happened. The main thing is intent, this intention, you know, of setting the intention in this moment to be skillful, you know, and this good and bad sometimes the, it comes from these terms that are used a lot in the sutta. Kusala and a kusala which I think is probably better translated as skillful and unskillful. Um, Gill sometimes says healthy or, or unhealthy, you know, or wise or foolish. I mean, you can, you can kind of spin it in a lot of different ways. And it's just making, you know, setting the intentions. We know, you know, I mean, kind of the, what is the, the, the main thrust of Buddhism? It's, it's non-harming, right? You know, and so we know that when we harm, we're setting up unfavorable conditions for us and others more suffering, and that when we were skillful, we're more likely to end suffering or not, you know, perpetuate it. And, and that's kind of how I, I and I've, I've had to really look at my life and, you know, blaming people. Um, you know, in my job, I see, uh, I work in an emergency room, so I see a lot of people, you know, just in horrible states. You know, they've been in a bar- bad car crash or they come in, you know, just rip-roaring drunk, you know, and just really obnoxious and, you know, just... And, you know, there's a lot of my life I've spent, you know, really judging and saying, oh, that person gets what they deserve. You know, and that's really not a, I don't think that's a Buddhist response to that situation. It's more of a compassion, like, oh, that person's suffering tremendously, and I know what suffering's like. I've, I've experienced, you know, different forms of suffering. But it, when you get down to it, it's, it's not his suffering and my suffering. It's, it's suffering, you know, and just to have that kind of understanding that there's this, this karma that we're living under and, and um, experiencing, and the, the best we can do is set our intentions in the moment to 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 be uh, kusala. 
It seems to me that it's the difference between linear thinking, which we all kind of like this and then this, or or the way things really happen. It's so complex. How can we possibly connect one thing and say that's the result of it? That's just so linear. It just doesn't make sense. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we we're probably we might not get to it, but the dependent origination or Paticca Samapada, those are teachings, Buddhist teachings that really look at conditionality, how things condition and how this all works on a on a very micro level and also applied to multiple lives. And it's 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 not linear. I mean, there's these 12 links, but they things are influencing each other. And Ajahn Jeff, you know, kind of has these nice fractals on his books that show how things take off and they form these little eddy currents. And yeah, it is, it isn't, you know, direct. And, you know, I think Buddhism would say it's not you that gets reincarnated. It's not your mental physical continuum. It's, you know, maybe someone used the word energy and I don't even know if that's an appropriate term in some of the teachings it's consciousness, but we have to be really careful there because the, the Western psychology term for consciousness is, you know, we have this, we have a consciousness that, you know, is really influenced by our past and it's, you know, this kind of this whole thing. And I don't think it says anywhere in the suttas that that's what, in fact, there's in Majjhima Nikaya, um, I think it's 38, this man named Sati comes to the Buddha and says, it's my consciousness that's reborn, isn't it? And he calls him a foolish man. He says, I never taught that. It's, it's not consciousness that goes from life to life. And then he teaches him dependent origination as, you know, that's what it is. It's this process that's going on that's constantly changing. There's no identity behind it. There's no, you know, me that's going on to the next life. So it's, it's, I think it's hard, you know, that linear thinking is a, is a good point you make. Well, it's lunchtime. We didn't... Um, I think we should take a break here. You know, people are probably hungry. Uh, we still have the last and the, perhaps the most important knowledge of the night, which we'll come back to after lunch. And we'll, we'll take an hour for lunch. Um, and.